You're listening to episode 147 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And you're sat right there. I'm sat right next to you. I know. This but is the first time we've recorded the pod in person since March 2020. So 14 months? That's so. insane, isn't it? I know. And there's the episode from early March 2020 where you're talking about how COVID hasn't really affected anything <laughs> in Norwich yet. Famous last words. Yeah. I'm so sorry for bringing this upon us. Yeah, that, that podcast dated really, really fast. Yeah, great. Oh so it is the 21st of May 2021 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, and we are making us a, a slow, safe return to Dragon Hall piece by piece. And also, this week marks the first time we're going to have audiences back, which is even more exciting. We. And there's really noisy cars, which is a thing we've not had to worry about. We haven't had to worry about background (laughs) noise for a very long time. Dragon Hall is quite an echoey building. Um, Yes, so City of Literature, uh, which is our annual festival in partnership with Norfolk and Norwich Festival, begins this week. And we are having our first socially distanced event back in the building. It is... I think Medieval Merchants didn't build it with sound recording in mind. No, I don't think they did, you know. It wasn't a major factor for them. Outrageous. The event is called Provenance and it is written by a former UEA graduate and acclaimed writer Ayobami Adebayo. Uh, And this is a very, it's an emotional, it's a really vivid, immersive installation, which is involving digital screens and live performance as well. And we are running about three performances a day between Friday the 21st and Sunday the 30th of April at Dragon Hall, which is very, very exciting. It's completely free. And uh, if you're listening to this and the the event is still running make sure you head over to the Norfolk and Norwich Festival website to book your free place if you don't get a chance to experience provenance in person do not fret because there will be uh, eventually a link going up on our website where you can experience the entire story digitally online and we will also have our YouTube event with Aobami in conversation with Professor Jean McNeil from UEA coming up very soon as well so Provenance is marking the start of City of Literature this year, and we have a whole mix of other online events happening. So we've got website launches with immersive soundscapes. We've got more online events on YouTube with sort of writer conversations. We've got an online resource pack for you to connect with the nature in your neighborhood. It's all coming up very soon. It will be arriving on our website. It's completely free to take part in and enjoy. So do head over to our website and check it out. Yeah, head over to nationalcenterforwriting.org.uk for all the details. So on the show today, we have the next of our Imagining the City podcasts, and today we're featuring Vala Gunnarsson talking to Sarah Bauer. Vala grew up on the Viking Trail in Reykjavik, Oslo and Yorkshire. He is best known as a writer of creative historical fiction. His first novel was a Viking fantasy, and his third, an alternative history where the Germans invaded Iceland in World War II. His fourth book, Jarmalond, which came out this year, made it to number one on the non-fiction chart. Yeah, this is an especially good podcast. I really enjoyed this one. I'm not familiar with Vala's work and um, I don't think all of it has been translated into English yet, which is a shame. Hopefully that will that will happen. But he talks a lot about alternate histories, obviously, which is something he's focused a lot on in 
in his writing, covering topics such as writing action sequences, the importance of location, discussions around national identity, and also why we should all just talk Klingon. And Valor was, of course, one of our writers in residence back in February 2021 for our Imagining the City project. So he was joining us virtually from Reykjavik alongside four other writers from UNESCO cities across the world. So if you want to read more about what our residents got up to during their stay, uh, head over to the National Centre for Writing website and under What's On, hit Imagining the City. Do you reckon listeners can hear that lovely drilling in the background? Unsure. Yeah. This is the thing, when we're back in the centre of town, there's always always stuff going on, and also we're renovating parts of Dragon Hall at the moment, making sure that it's all ready for audiences to come back, and of course there's a show being prepared up in the Great Hall, so it's nice to see activity back here. Yeah, it's part of the immersive podcast listening experience, <laughs> I'd yes. say. Yeah, exactly, you never know what's going to happen next, unlike when we're doing it from home. Hi Hannah. Hannah is getting her lunch. Hannah's joining us from the kitchen. Yeah. Is that bottle of wine yours, Hannah? Yeah. Peggy's leaving? Yeah. Nice to see you. Good luck tonight. Peggy, do you want to, do you want to come and say hi on the podcast to all the listeners? Oh, goodness, are you podcasting? Yeah, yeah it doesn't we're, matter. We're always podcasting. We're literally just saying, like, we're back in the building. It's full of action. Back in the building and Peggy's shouting like, bye. <laughs> it's lovely. Oh, my gosh. So, Steph, we're now in the third recording location. We are. <laughs> yeah. Take three. Yeah, this is the challenge of recording uh, in an office. We're, we're so used to recording from home where we can completely control everything that happens. No, it's a hive of activity, which is, as we said before, is lovely, but is uh, posing a few challenges if you need to find a quiet room for podcasting. Yes. So I think before we have to move around the building yet again, we should probably hand over to Valor and Sarah. I'm here this morning with Icelandic author and translator Valor Gunnarsson who is our current UNESCO writer in residence, although this is a virtual residence. So I am speaking from Norwich and Gunnar is uh, in Valor is in uh, Reykjavik. Um, so um, Valor, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing during this residency. Yeah, hello. Uh, in terms of myself, my first book came out in 2007. Previous to that, I had founded a paper in Iceland called Reykjavik Grapevine, which was and still is in English. Uh, it's still coming out um, now almost 20 years later, unlike um, many papers these days. Apparently, COVID hasn't been doing them any favors either, even though people are, are reading more news, but might be the five doesn't print all that's been predicted for. Well, the reason I wanted to do this is because I was studying at UEA for... Um, in 2018 to 19, um, uh, I, I was doing a PhD in critical and creative writing, and I was taking a year off, partly for financial reasons, but then COVID and everything happened. Mm. So um, honestly, I don't know when I will be returning to Norwich, but this was a fun occasion to go back to Norwich without actually going back to Norwich. <laughs> well, we're, we're delighted to have you with us Um uh, and and um, I think that one of the things that you were um, thinking of doing during the residency was a, 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 a walk. So you were inspired by um, W.G. Sable to do a sort of literary walk. Yeah, uh, because when I when I decided to do this, I was thinking about something that would connect Reykjavik and Norwich and. Well, I mean, the, there is the Viking past. Uh, Norwich means Northern Vizki, as I understand, which means Northern Fortress. But leaving Vikings aside for, for a brief moment, I was actually thinking about 
coastal areas. Um, I think it was the last week before I left East Anglia or Norfolk. Uh, I had to drive around the coast um, and walked a lot. I'm not terribly conscious of the coast in Reykjavik, actually, but it's all pervasive. It's sort of like oxygen. You don't notice it, but you miss it when it's gone. Not only is Iceland obviously an island, but Reykjavik is also a small peninsula on that island, so you can always see the ocean more or less in three directions. And then, yeah, I actually started to think about how my own work, as well as probably that of all athletic writers, is somehow a reflection of the sea and the coast um, without necessarily consciously being so. And and yeah, I remember the Sebald Room in, in UEA. Uh, I went to a lot of lectures in and, and this book, uh, The Rings of Saturn, where he's he's uh, walking around the Norfolk coast and, and thinking about almost everything. So uh, by the end of February, I'll have figured out how all this comes together, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope so. I think it sounds a really interesting project. And I was I was thinking while you were talking and describing Reykjavik, which I haven't visited, but would absolutely love to, um, whether those of us who are born and brought up and live on islands do take the sea for granted to some extent, and whether maybe some of the sense of wonder that's in the rings of Saturn, it comes from somebody whose origins are much more continental. Yeah. Come from the, the centre of the sort of European landmass. Just a, an idea that, that um, I had in passing. Um, but look, yeah, one thing I have picked up from looking at your work is that you write in a great many different forms. You write poetry and songs. You're a journalist, as you've mentioned, a novelist. Um, and I wonder how you see the different forms. Do, do, do you see these as very different processes or all part of the same writing continuum? Probably the same continuum. I think maybe this is a bit more typical for Iceland because we are a village pretending to be a nation of <laughs> 360,000 people. So we all have to sort of dabble in, in many things. Uh, so, you know, jack of all trades, uh, list of none, sort of. Islanders um, are always late. They're always, you know, you know, in, in, a, in some village, you might, you know, somebody is a farmer and a fireman and he plays the organ in, in the church on Sundays. You know, everyone's wearing too many hats. So, um, I, my, well, my primary interest certainly is uh, writing novels these days, although before it might actually have been writing song lyrics. Um, other forms uh, I do almost out of necessity or, or because the opportunity is there in a sense. I mean, I've, I've written you know, thousands of articles, more, more for practical reasons, um, which has certainly taught me to be, uh, I think, a bit more uh, precise even to, to yeah. be, to, you know, I mean, uh, when you're writing an article, every, uh, every, spacing every word is so costly uh literally in, in terms of print that it's going to teach you to be sparse and it also teaches you to respect deadlines which i'm not sure everyone does it's a useful skill to have i, th I think um I, I, yes I, 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 it resonates with me what you say there the importance of deadlines and the importance of discipline 
in the way you write, um, which you do get from shorter forms, certainly journalism, don't you? Yeah, I think I think in journalism you're always trading quality for time, uh, which is probably hard for the writer because I mean, with any article you write, it could always be better if you take an extra day, but then the paper's gone out, then it's too late. So yeah. <laughs> you get used to to doing what you can in the time allotted, so you can sort of have a sense of you know. If I have a week to write this, I will write it like so. But if I have a day, I will write it in this way. And, you know, to just use the time you have as well as you can, uh, rather than stretching, rather than trying to get more time. And, and you know, a book takes a year, probably two years, actually. I usually intended to be a year, but it will be two. Uh, but, you know, and then I think about what I can do in that time. Do, do, you find, do, do you find the process of writing a novel kind of more of a luxury in that respect? Because you know that you've got, you know, tens of thousands of words and a much longer period of time to do it in. If you are in the position that you, you can just write novels, you know, which I think everyone does as a passion project, then you're really fortunate. I've only had that for for spaces of time, not for forever. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I think when I when I when I started writing novels, I was a bit disappointed with how strict they were. I thought, oh, finally, here I am. I'm writing my own book. I can do whatever I want. You know, I'm in, in charge here. But then yeah. I realized that the novel doesn't really allow that. It sort of, it has its own needs that you have to attend to. And it's, okay. it's always much more limiting than you would think because you think that you have, you know, an almost endless amount of space. Uh, but, but yeah, you have to you have to think about the novel's needs and not your own Yes, I think that's I think that's really beautifully put. Actually, I, I I would rather like to type that out and stick it above my computer screen, because it, it it is very true, isn't it? A novel has its own requirements, it has its own world and its own set of people in it, and you have to to some extent follow what they are asking you to do. You very kindly, Valo, sent me um, some extracts of your work in translation into English, and we'll come back to the translation question. But one thing that I was really struck by, um, it's reading um, from Eagle and Falcon, which is your alternate history, um, proposing a, a Nazi occupation of Iceland during the Second World War, um, which on the face of it w- would sound like a pretty grim prospect. But um, I was very struck by how funny it was. There's a lot of very good, sharp irony in it, and also some sort of complete broad farce in the section I had when a, a sort of inept group of resistance type fighters almost inadvertently are taking on the full force of the SS. Um, and I was kind of laughing out loud and then asking myself whether I should be. And I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit about the power of humour in that kind of context, in the context of a very, very bleak and um, tough subject. I think after a while, it almost becomes the only way to look at things. Uh, you know, these days there are so many conspiracy theories. You know, as I mentioned, it was, you know, some people were saying that Mike Pence is the genius, the evil genius behind Trump or, uh, or Steve Bannon or something because Trump was so obviously an idiot that it was just hard to. Uh, for people, I think, to, to grasp but the most powerful man in the world was, you know, obviously a, 
full, although that's the, although I think that's pretty obvious by now. So, you know, um, human history is just a series of follies, really. You know, there there is no master plan. There is no no plot. I mean, there are people who do terrible, terribly evil things like the Nazis. That's the exception. But, you know, everything, uh, yeah, everything is just really a, a series of, of follies. And so the only way to look at history, I think, to attempt to survive it is, uh, you know, it's looking at it humorously. Yeah, I was thinking while you were talking about Trump, of, of the notion that um, the sort of political and historical ironists, to some extent, have been overtaken by events, things that, that, that they might have proposed as preposterous, have in the last few years all come to all come to be. You know, the, the, the sort of um, TV game show host as president, etc., and everywhere that takes us. It's, it's probably becoming more difficult to... Um, to make up an alternative history, given the world we're living in. Yeah, we are living in an alternative history. I'm just not really sure what the divergence point was. Where did it? <laughs> where did it all go wrong? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's it just increasingly clear. You know, we're we're on the wrong side of the mirror. There's the, <laughs> it's never happened. The, um, I mean, it may have been 2016, but that's when I think we all started to become aware of the fact that this is, this is something really strange going on here. But yeah. It may have gone back to, I don't know, the economic collapse of 2008 or, or, or uh, 2001 even, or maybe even uh, for my generation at least, you know, maybe it just goes back to 1989. That was, you know, we grew up in the Cold War, mm. uh, you know, Things were clearly delineated. There was east and west, and then that whole world suddenly collapses, and and you know things have just never been quite normal again. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's an interesting point because I, I you might be right about that. So I think if you look back, you might see the seeds of the kind of resurgence of nationalism there. But it's very, it is very interesting actually, and it, I mean, it does lead me to another question I was going to ask about. Um, alternate histories and uh, to some extent you may have answered it by the conversation about the convergence the, the divergence point and where that comes and what that means for actual history but I was wondering what you think what what compelled you to write alternate history and what you think the uses of that genre are uh, yeah actually I think the idea was somewhat growing in my mind since that point, since the end of the Cold War that we just discussed, because, you know, I do remember nobody uh, predicting the end of the Soviet Union. Nobody saw it coming. And then after the fact, uh, everyone's saying, oh, yes, that had to happen. That was obvious, you know, then, you know, it was preordained. But, you know, but if history is what had to happen, then why, why do we never see it coming? And I remember something like that again in, uh, you know, before the banking collapse of 2008, before that, everyone, certainly in Iceland, uh, in Ireland too, I believe, thought that we, that we were predestined to become the, the richest, happiest people on earth. And then everyone was shocked when the whole system collapsed. And then about half a year later, everyone said, yeah, I knew I knew it was coming. I could see it coming. And, and now, of course, with, with 
Trump and everything. We, we've just seen we've seen how how random history is. So if it has uses, I'm not even convinced that it that it does. But if it has uses, it is something um, along the lines of just um, understanding that history is not what had to happen. It's not predetermined, um, and it's not always just these strong, powerful. You know, historical forces compelling us in this direction or that. It is also the actions of, of individuals, conscious or not, that that for one reason or another propel us in this direction or that. And it could all have gone very differently, and it still can all go very differently if we uh, wanted to and if we do something about it. I, I wonder if if that idea that an that an ultimate history can warn us of the dangers of the, of, of the direction of travel that we're on. I wonder if that might be behind the fact that it seems to me that a great many of these alternate histories do focus on the Nazi period. And I wonder, as you're writing about it yourself, or have been writing about it yourself, whether you have a view about why that might be. Um, well, I think, you know, almost just as a child, I was I first probably became interested in World War Two when um, my parents moved to Britain in uh, the 80s, and and it was almost like entering history from Iceland, <laughs> because Iceland is almost a country outside of history uh, where nothing ever happens. You know, we are. I mean, we are still fighting the Second World War, as Boris Johnson is reminds us that reminds us every evening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then in Britain, it almost felt like there was nothing but history, you know, and and. You really walk into that mythology of World War Two, and, yeah. and I think it's just that you know, as a child, the basic question to ask. I mean, well, if they were fighting the Nazis, then the Nazis surely could have won; otherwise, there would have been no point. So, what if they had won? So, you know, it's. I think it's just a basic, curious question in that sense. Mm-hmm. But, but having said that, you know, I think how, I mean, if, yeah. First of all, it is just one of those, you know, turning points, one of those great events in history. Uh, where we can imagine uh, things going differently, but brings out that it's also how Nazi victory is portrayed changes a lot from one era to another, and so and then it becomes more about the the time of writing. That is, you know, in some ways Nazis are a Rorschach test of what what you don't like. That's what Nazism is, and and uh, so people protect their fears on it. Um, so what I was working on at UEA, which is going to be in my next novel, is um, you know I think starting from the '60s, from the hippies and counterculture, we see Nazis as these sort of technological evil geniuses, you know. Mm. But I think going back to what was fictional accounts of them from uh, during and just after and even before the war, there's a very different view of them, which I find fascinating. They're they're always seen as regressive. They're seen as sort of barbaric and a Nazi victory, which is the oldest book of, uh, that deals with this. is actually from 1936, so before the war, by uh, the writer's pen name was Constantine Murray, which, uh, and it's called Swastika Night, uh, which shows Nazi victory about a thousand years in the future. And that's gone back to the sort of feudal society. And I think that might actually be more correct. You know, the Nazis weren't dragging us forcefully into this uh, technological future. They were actually um, protesting against it. They were they were terrified of the future. They were terrified of multiculturalism. They were even terrified of cities. 
And I think that's what brings us to uh, populism today, writing populism today. It, it's, you know, it's a reaction against what people see as the future or even a reaction against the present, which is the, the basic point. Yes, because I, I, I was thinking while you were talking that, of course, the, the Nazis adopted a lot of iconography of imperial Rome, but also uh, that there was a big interest in, in Norse mythology, wasn't there, behind the behind Nazi ideology? Um, not, you know, Norse mythology as doubtless you would understand it, but the concept of Norse mythology was important to them, um, you know, the Wagnerian approach. Yeah, the, uh, it, it was... It was very irrational in many ways. It, it wasn't rational at all. It was, it was, you know, mythical. And world gods, as we call them, they're also used um, for really whatever you want to use them for. Um, I, I stress to add that the, the Vikings were actually multicultural in the sense that they had no, you know, wherever they went, they always mixed and very quickly with them. With local population, but yeah, I mean, during the banking boom, we see the the Vikings as uh, proud entrepreneurs and tradesmen. Um, you know, Nazis would see them as, as racial warriors. You know, today uh, in Iceland, we like to stress the the multicultural aspect and the the democratic aspect of them. Uh, so, well, I mean, as with most things in history, you can sort of you can. Uh, adapt them to your needs as see fit you can or if you're boris jo johnson you can pretend you're fighting the battle of britain <laughs> yes <laughs> indeed i'm not i'm not quite sure the analogy holds together but he's sticking to it obviously yeah because the irony is that that churchill was actually fighting for europe he was yes, involved in europe <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know I know. Yeah, there are a, a, a lot of inconsistencies there. Staying with your novel writing, but going at a at a slight tangent from the from the alternate history. One thing that did strike me, um, and I'm asking this question because um, these podcasts are targeted very much at, at, at writers. So we do look to try and prize writers' secrets out of them a little bit. One thing that did strike me is that you write action sequences incredibly well. And I find them absolutely impossible. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to share your tips for writing good action. Well, I've, I've never had to deal with a uh, sort of flattery of this type before, so I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that actually, because there, um, you know, there, there is a sort of strong realist bent in Icelandic literature. So you know, stepping out of that is hard, and I'm not. I wasn't, in fact, entirely sure that I pulled it off, but I will certainly be adding a lot of action sequences from now on. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it is just about letting the boy in you or the child in you out a bit. You know, I was, you know, I, uh, as a child, especially in Britain, you know, I read a lot about history and about World War II, and, of course, I watched a lot of Star Wars and all that. And, and here, you know, the, you're also aware of the Vikings, so you just sort of let it out. Not be afraid to to uh, live yourself into it, but maybe one tip could possibly be to think about location and how you can utilize location. Mm -hmm. 
because otherwise all action sequences are going to be the same. Um, so uh, this novel, The Eagle and the Falcon, is sort of in two parts. One of them is in occupied Reykjavik, which isn't very actiony. Uh, and my publisher actually pointed that out that you know half the book is sort of about what would actually be like if the Nazis did invade and occupy, and that's also a lot based on the occupation of, of Norway and Denmark, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of more thoughtful. But then there's this is just long action sequence, uh, this chase, and of course in Iceland the highlands are a wonderful area for that. There's this. Most of Iceland is completely uninhabited. Um, no one lives there, and you can very easily get lost there. There are always a few people each year who who uh, die because they fall into fall into a glacier, or, or you know, or get caught in a storm or something. And and so uh, it's a fascinating, dangerous, scary place. So um, so I had to. I had to take those those two parts and mix them together. So every other chapter, so the alternate from from the actiony ones to the the more thoughtful ones. And um, yeah, but just in, in Iceland, it's almost easy because you have this big chunk of land that's black desert and, and glaciers, and that invites you know all sorts of actiony things. Where when you have Nazis chasing you on one side, but then you're also dealing with the elements, and you're, you're Dealing with uh, the weather, which is also out to get you. Yes, I, I wanted to. I wanted to talk to you a bit about the role of, of climate and weather in your writing more generally. I just wanted to follow up what you've said, which is really interesting, um, with a supplementary question about, as well as 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 well as um, you know, choosing your setting, as you say, and having that setting contribute to the action. Is there a point at which you have to sit down and work it all out logically and say this happens, then this happens, then so-and-so does that, so so-and-so does the other? Do you have to do that or can you just can you just write it intuitively? No. Um, I did go on a trip uh, there, which is fascinating. You drive all the way from uh, southwest to the northeast, uh, uh, right across the highlands, and then I went on a trip from there, and then and then back again to Reykjavik. So, you know, uh, spending eight hours uh, on a bus looking out the window at, at just this magnificent desolation that will, uh, well, you have nothing to do, so you might as well be thinking about your book. Indeed, that uh, sounds ideal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did car sick if I read, so I just had to sit there for eight hours. <laughs> sit there and dream it up and hope yeah. that you would remember all the details when you got back <laughs> yeah the major point and then i went and bought a map of iceland made by the oh. danish army in 1939 oh fascinating and i put it up on the wall for uh, next to my computer so um i mean it's, it's the same iceland of course but there are some villages that in past that did exist then and, and don't know now vice versa so i did try to sort of Literally map it out. I, I, I mean, aren't maps just absolute treasures for historical writers? I think historical maps are endlessly fascinating. Yeah, even when the borders change, but there are always these little things that, that do. Yeah, I and mean, that's the whole thing, isn't it? You know, you look at you look at a place that you think you know as it was mapped fifty years ago or a hundred years ago, and it's 
it is both familiar and strange. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted, even though it's alternative history, and I always have that excuse if someone calls me out, oh no, in this world it's like this, but you know, but I did want to make the, the setting as authentic as possible, even though I, I know that, uh, you know, by the end of the chase and there's a, there's a nuclear arms factory, it, it does tell from, from the sort of realist beginning into, into sort of pure, um, into more science fiction. That's the that's the beauty of ultimate histories. They are that lovely combination of the, of, of the real and the totally invented. Yeah, in in UEA, I became you know just doing a lot of research. I became more aware of how alternate history uh, sprang out of science fiction. Yeah, in the first half of history, I mean, its roots are definitely in science fiction. Although I think I came to it more from uh, an interest in actual history. Um, uh, but I'm becoming, I think, more and more interested in science fiction aspects. Well, it'll be interesting to see see where that takes you. Um, if we could come back to weather and the landscape, um, which you've, you've, you've already mentioned in connection, I think, you know, very fluently and interestingly in connection with how you construct these particular scenes. But in reading a lot of the um, work that you kindly shared with me, I picked up uh, subtexts about weather, climate change, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm thinking particularly um, of the, the theme that runs under The Last Lover, for example. Um, and I, I wanted not so much to ask about the importance of these things to you as a writer. They're clearly very important to you. And I, again, wonder if insularity, small islands, weather, sea, things like that make writers from island nations particularly interested in weather and, and that kind of thing. But I wonder what you think a writer's responsibilities are in the age we live in to the climate change message, if indeed you think we have any, perhaps we don't. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in the genre of science fiction, you know, the with alternate history has been sort of more popular, but now there's, you know, eco-fiction, which is uh, more and more uh, popular, you know. I always felt that the problem with the weather is very often that it's hard to make a story out of it. It doesn't necessarily make a, a very compelling villain. Um, I mean, you know, Nazis are very easy villains to have. <laughs> Now we get to the truth of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, if you just think about, you know, action films, there was the day after tomorrow. That's one of the only sort of, you know, climate uh, films, you know, and the actual climate action films that I can think of. Um, I think up here, maybe we are, maybe we sort of do have responsibility because it happens here first. During the economic collapse, it was said that Iceland was the canary in the coal mine as the Icelandic economy went, so would the rest of the world. But I think maybe that's more apt for climate change. Uh, yeah, interesting. And probably even more so for Greenland because, well, in my book, I, I do sort of allude to the fact that, you know, in, during World War II, uh, in uh, 
And Giles Foden, who was my uh, supervisor in UEA, has actually wrote yeah. a book about this. But in, in World War II, it was very important to to have meteorologists in Iceland and and on islands of the coast of Norway and in Greenland, because that way they could predict what the weather would be like um, in Europe in the following days. So you had, you know, German and, and British weathermen sh- taking shots at each other off the off the coast of Greenland. Um, it's interesting in itself. But yeah, if we have some sort of possibility, it is that, uh, you know, and I think in this sense, Iceland will, will can show you what will happen next. I, I wonder, uh, though, whether I, I've heard it said, and I forget who by, that you now can't write a novel without writing about the climate. I think it was an American author. I wish I could remember who it was. I should be able to attribute the quote, but I can't. And I kind of, that was a question that resonated with me. And I thought, is that true? Even if we're not directly writing about it in yeah. a way that the example of Giles's wonderful novel um, is writing about the weather. Is it something that always has to be there now? Uh, it might even be there without you wanting to. I, I mean, it's almost like... Uh... Being an Icelandic writer and and mentioning the coast, you don't think, oh, no, it's been twenty pages. There's something about the coast now. <laughs> it's, it's more, you know, the coast is always going to be there, uh, no matter what you do. And uh, maybe with climate change, it's the same. You might be writing about something completely different, but you know, at some point, you're going to be thinking the weather is different than it used to be. You know, and that's just, you know, a, a sort of all pervasive. <laughs> uh, Somehow, I mean, the weather here has always been a bit strange, and that has always changed a lot. But it is, it is warmer than it used to be. Yeah, uh, so it will just, even if it, if you're not trying to make the point, it's just, I think, a, such a big part of, of the world as is today that you can't, you can't not mention it. And I, I wonder, you you say about your weather being very changeable, as indeed is ours. I wonder whether we island dwellers have stolen a march on more continental peoples who are only just now re- realizing how important the weather is, whereas we've already we've known always. <laughs> it's always been a thing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, famously, every every English conversation starts with starts and ends with weather, <laughs> and and it would be the same up here. But yeah, I mean. Same way that writers that have been sort of self-isolating for for decades before everyone started doing it. <laughs> True. Uh, I've been living in 2020 for 20 years now. It's... Yeah. Yes, I understand that. I that resonates. I, I I think perhaps writers have been better equipped for the times we're living living in than than many other people. I feel quite blessed in that respect. I think. Well, I did want to talk to you about the fact that you are multilingual, you write in several languages, um, and you translate. And it's a a couple of things, really. First of all, I wonder, is there something which compels you when you have an idea to write it in one language or another? Uh, No. In some ways, I prefer or used to prefer writing in English, perhaps because it usually isn't my day-to-day language. So it's sort of it is my literary language, or was, and then it, it takes me into another zone. People think that because English is the largest language in the world, that uh, that gives you more opportunities. But for some reason, all literature is 
national still. You know, it's it's a hangover from from the 19th century. Yeah. For example, if you're an Icelandic writer and you want to get your work read abroad, you're not going to knock on the door of British publishers and say, "Hey, I'm from Iceland. Will you publish my book?" Yeah, you will have to go through uh, the local chain of command. You'll have to get your books published in Icelandic and then have them translated as a an Icelandic work into other languages, which actually for me are usually German or, or French or Nordic languages. Um, so yeah, all, all literature is still dealt with in this international sense. Uh, as in the libraries, uh, you know, there's Russian literature here and, and German and, and French and so on. So I think we, we think of literature in terms of nationality perhaps more than any other art form. Um, of course, it is based on language, so it maybe goes to the territory. But I, I could imagine, though, maybe 100 years from now or, or whatever, what language you write in or where you're from wouldn't matter. And maybe, I, hopefully so, but but it still does. I mean, in a way, I am doing this residency as an Icelandic writer, and I can't help but think that there's one guy from Poland and there's a woman from New Zealand and another from Ireland. And, and, you know, it's, it's always sort of, you know, nationality is always just such a big part of it. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, particularly in the context of these residences being under the umbrella of UNESCO, which, of course, is, is, is designed to bring the world together. And yet, in some way, you're saying the structure of it seems to be underscoring the national individualities. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if there's necessarily any way around that. I'm not saying that it, it's wrong. You know, I mean, to bring people together, you need to bring people together from different places. And therefore, you cannot help but emphasize those places. And it's also useful for the other people to, to learn about the places where said people are, are coming from. But, um, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, um, the whole Thing is structured around sort of nationality, and Icelandic literature has been doing quite well in getting itself translated. Um, a big part of that is interest in Iceland itself as a country, so that helps. But you know, it's relatively easy to get cultural grants to translate um, books. Um, my Danish publisher is a very small one. I think it's essentially one woman who does most of the things herself. Uh, from the translating to the, you know, uh, the layout or whatever. And uh, and I think that she can make a living essentially from getting the translation grants from uh, the various cultural institutions. And then she just publishes the books herself. So it's, you know, it's not a bad system. But, um, yeah, I, it's, I still hope that someday we will outgrow this nationalist idea um you know um it's quite fashionable somehow these days to learn icelandic i don't know why um there are more people in the world to speak klingon than who speak icelandic <laughs> that's a wonderful statistic i like that <laughs> yeah. and so you know to, to be writing in, in in one of the world's smallest and hence most useless languages always seems a bit um Pointless. I, you know, I, I, language to me is a tool uh, which 
you know, throughout the struggle for independence, it was almost seen that literature was a way to preserve the language and literature of the language. But I see it as completely the other way around. You know, the uh, language is just a tool to make books, and you, you know, should admire the house if you like, but not the screwdriver or the hammer. That's a, that's an it's an interesting view. Um, I, I was going to ask you actually about the you know what are the particular sort of joys and challenges of translating your own work from one language to another, um, as opposed to being translated. I'd be quite interested, particularly in, in light of what you've just said. I'd be quite interested in hearing um, about your own process and about the experience of having a, you know working with another translator. Yeah, I, I haven't done a great deal of translating, but I've, um, for uh, PR purposes, I've translated, of course, uh, chapters from my own books. Um, usually, they get someone else to do that, but I feel on the well confident enough in English. In my first book, they actually did have someone else translate um, the chapter, and, and it took forever for one thing, and. And I thought the result was just, you know, took all that time. So translating yourself definitely gives you a lot of control over it. And and the big difference between translating yourself and translating someone else is that with yourself, you can make improvements. You can change things as you like. So yeah, I don't feel that I need to have any fidelity to the original text or the authorial intent. But of course, if you're translating another writer, you need to be much more careful about what they are trying to say. Interestingly, uh, I just learned that translations tend to be longer than the original text in almost every language because it always takes more words to explain what was being said than yeah. say it. Yes, that doesn't surprise me. I didn't actually know that statistic, but it doesn't surprise me um, because you are, when you work into another language, I guess that you can't always capture the idiom that will be understood by the other speakers of the original language quite quickly. Yeah, there's just something in that when you're writing, you can be more clear, or even less clear uh, about what you're trying to say in, in, in fewer words than, than someone who's trying to then explain it to someone else. Um, Translations you've made of your work, are they basically, I mean, are they, would you call them sort of rewritten as opposed to just translated? Do you make big changes? No. I haven't, um, because none of them has been for publication yet, and they've all been sort of very close in time to the original work. It's been a few months. I mean, if somebody now were to publish one of my uh, uh, novels in English and I were to translate it, I, I might make more changes because it's been been longer, so I would have maybe a different perspective. Yeah, and, and there's also just the, the seriousness of publication that makes you uh, <laughs> re reconsider. It's very different than just, you know, translating one chapter or for someone to read. So, But there was a Finnish couple who made a book of photographs of Iceland. Actually, they were Finnish-Italian. Uh, they lived in Finland. But he was Finnish, and he never said a word, and she was Italian, and she spoke constantly. <laughs> and yeah, they, they did a photo book from Iceland and they asked me and some of the people to to contribute poems and 
in both Icelandic and English, or, or English translations of Icelandic. But as it happened, I had originally written the poems in English when I was Queens in Belfast. And so I had to make original copies almost from those. Uh, so the Icelandic translations came later. And, and when you're dealing with poetry, you just it's the most difficult to, to translate because you, you just, you know, because there's so much in every word and there's the meter and there's usually rhyme and, and you have to change things around a lot more. I did an album once of Leonard Cohen songs in uh, that I translated into Icelandic, which I played with a lot. Uh, but the one song I left out was Suzanne because it doesn't have any rhyme. It was just too open, too free. I didn't know what to do with it. This is a more of a challenge, sort of, and it put constraints on you that are useful when you at least have to, yeah. you know, and it's hard to deal with Leonard Cohen's words, but if you find something in Icelandic that rhymes, you feel that you've, you know, that you've done something with it. And, and with translating songs, the business of meter is even more strict, isn't it? Um, I mean, if it's a poem for reading on the page, you can perhaps vary the meter in translation, but if the song has still got to fit the music that was written for it, you haven't got a lot of leeway. This is sort of a, a whole subculture of Leonard Cohen translations. Uh, at first, I heard Norwegian translations, and then I wanted to do my own. Uh, one of the famous ones is Sambati from Poland. Uh, and I don't speak Polish, but I can tell that his meter is just all over the place. Uh, so I assume his translations must be very good, because he doesn't really care so much about the meter. So, Bala, uh, talk about the book that's coming out next month. I was thinking about plagues and how plagues always come in, in sevens or something. And at the first half of last year, I was in Ukraine and Kiev, uh, and I wanted to stay for a few months longer than I intended to. And because soon after arriving, the whole place closed down and it was more severe than in most places. There were no flights for two months. And I could have taken the last one back, but I decided not to. And I was sort of wondering, you know, should I maybe have left? And then... Chernobyl caught fire and there was this thick radioactive smog over town, but everyone was wearing masks anyway because of COVID. And I hadn't spoken to another person for two months, nor indeed seen anyone's face because of masks. And I was working on my alternative history, um, a lot to do with the Soviet Union still existing, um, still doing 20th century totalitarians. But it wasn't a good time to actually uh, to do research or to do the thought processes of constructing a book. I just had to sit down and write. So mm. I uh, I wrote about what was happening in Ukraine and, and I put together all of the different articles and papers, things that are written about uh, Russia and uh, the whole former uh, Soviet Union sphere. And it kept growing and growing. And, and now it's, it's almost a Russian length. <laughs> Because the index is 21 pages, and um, yeah, and, and I mean, it was just it was just a great thing to do, to be in that situation, and to just be completely engrossed in this thing, and I could just do the sort of manual labor of putting it all together and, and rewriting and rewriting, instead of, you know, so it was much easier to write than a straight novel. It's sort of auto-fiction-y. It's, it's actually a bit like The Last Lover. It's the personal and the political. There's the Soviet Union falling apart, and and me falling apart and, you know, um, trying to put things back together. Uh, this is due out next month. 
Yeah. And the title is? The title is sadly untranslatable, you know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it, it, it will come out in any other language necessarily because it's a book about an Icelander who's very much an Icelander in Russia and, you know, you, you have your own people into Russia, uh, as is everyone. But uh, with title is Bjarmaland. Uh, Bjarmaland means sort of Greenlands. It, it quite literally almost means land of the rising sun, but that has different connotations now that we know the world is bigger. But that's what the Vikings would call Russia. Essentially, it's the, the land where the sun rises. Because it's east, yes. Yeah. yeah. So Bjarma means sort of the gleam of, of light that you'd see coming from there. So, you know, I would probably call it Brightlands, but just because it sounds similar, but it's not really a, a translation. It, it sounds wonderful, and I, I, I would hope that it would be translated and be made accessible to other readers, because while it's obviously very specifically your experience, I think that one thing about this pandemic is that although there has been a degree of nationalism about closing borders and fighting for vaccines and things, there's also a sense in which it has affected us all. And even though your specific experience of being locked down in Ukraine with a smouldering Chernobyl in the background is, 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 is probably fairly unique, I'm sure there's, there's writing in it that would speak to anybody who's found themselves living through a plague. Yeah. Which, which is... No. So I, I hope that it I hope that it um, I, is going to find a home, in, particularly in English, because I want to read it. Yeah, well, maybe I can do your chapter. But the, <laughs> the one thing that I've learned uh, sort of hard way is um, that we still have centre and periphery. And the centre is actually quite small. It's essentially London and New York. Everything else must be filtered through the centre. You cannot sort of go from one periphery to another, you know. Okay, yeah. Uh, but the same is also true of, of Berlin, Paris, and other sort of centers. You know, I mean, I can go to Berlin or Paris or London and talk about Iceland, and everyone would be sort of happy to hear me speak about Iceland because I'm from Iceland, and, you know, I can <laughs> say something cute in Old Norse. But nobody's interested in hearing someone from Iceland sort of explain Russia to them because, you know, what does this guy know about Russia? He's from Iceland, you know. It's the same. I could, I could quite happily write a book about Vikings, but you know, but I couldn't write a book about Romans, for example. You know, Graves can write a book about Romans, um, even though he's English. So this, uh, yeah, because my first book was actually about a Finn in Finland, and, and nobody really got what I was trying to do. Uh, so yeah, there's always, you know, you you can. Well, I, I can explain Finland to Icelanders or I can explain Russia to Icelanders because I'm the guy who's been there, but I cannot go from the periphery to the center to explain another periphery to the center because they would have want someone from there to do it or one of their own. Yeah, so it, 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 that's an interesting view. Um, I, I'm not sure I entirely agree with it. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't agree. Philosophically, I don't agree that this is the way it should be. But I'm saying that this is, I think, always the way it will be. When you, you know, in Iceland, I can sort of talk about anything because, oh, that I want to and pretend to be an expert in. But as soon as I go somewhere else, I will always be the Icelander, the person from Iceland. And that will sort of always, you know, then that will become the, the how I'm viewed or 
for the identity. Yeah, I'm aware that taking a different position is partly because I'm from the English-speaking world, and you can't avoid certain preconceptions when you're from the English-speaking world because it's the dominant language at the moment. I think it's a shame that there is this assumption that somehow there are certain languages in which we can speak universally and certain others in which we can't, and I, which, I, to my mind, is a, is, a, is a strong argument for your book about Russia finding a wider audience. Yeah. Because there's nothing to stop you commenting on Russia, particularly if you were in Ukraine for several months at a time of crisis, you would have been able to observe, you know, that way of life. Yeah. In a in an utterly valid way, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, one of the things that just me, I mean, I do know the difference between Ukraine and Russia, just to be clear. Uh, and, and, but I've, I've also been to Russia a lot, so that's how. Uh, and, and I was comparing it a lot to Norway and Iceland, which is, you know, the whole reason for Iceland's existence is that we are not Norwegian. We do not want to be Norwegians. We want to, you know, uh, and we see ourselves as more unruly and, and less sort of uh, authoritarian. And, and that's exactly the same view the Ukrainians have of themselves vis-a-vis the Russians, except the Ukrainians see themselves as Cossacks and we see ourselves as Vikings, as were the Norwegians, but we're sort of more. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's very timely. I mean, I was, you know, the, these these kind of um, assertions of individuality come up all over the place. Yeah. Certain, you know, there, I think there is a universality of appeal, and I, I you know, I do hope that the that, that the book finds its way um, into other languages. Yeah. Well, ultimately, I, I hope. I, I know. I see this sort of a step on the way. We we have to become independent to to hopefully all all. Uh, come together again at some point. You know, I would think we would all just speak Klingon because it doesn't have the cultural <laughs> connotations. It's, you know, it's universal and, and we should all just, you know, decide to do that and then we can all get along, I hope. I think all speaking Klingon is is a fine ambition and, and a great place to end, Valor. And, and we do hope uh, to see you again in person in Norwich as soon as it's possible, uh, both from your point of view and the pandemics and you're able to come back and resume your studying here. Yeah. Yeah, also, thanks. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's a great pleasure talking to you, Vela, as well. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Vela and Sarah for their conversation. If you've got any questions or you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. You can find us on Facebook, and you can find out more about everything we do, the City of Literature programme, and sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We also have a Discord community full of lovely writers from around the world discussing writing, reading, favourite books, favourite techniques. You can join up to that for free using the link down in the show notes. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation today by heading over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and hitting the support us button. Please do rate, review and subscribe or follow the podcast because it helps other people to find it. Thanks again, keep writing and we will catch you next week when we have many podcast episodes. It's going to be a a treasure trove of podcasts next week. Get ready. A smorgasbord of content. Oh, that's the word I was looking for, a smorgasbord. Perfect. Cornucopia of earworms. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, first episode next week will be appearing on Monday. Catch you then. Mm